Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hi, thanks for joining me this Tuesday, February 1st. Boy, oh boy, oh boy, there's a lot going on today. People in Wisconsin are going to the polls. They are going to cut a field of four down to two as candidates vie to get the open seat on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. A little bit later today, we're going to be talking to uh, Ben Wickler from the uh, Democratic Party in Wisconsin. Two of the candidates running are Dems. Two of them are Republicans. And uh, there will be two chosen today who will face one another in an April 4th runoff. It could be any combination of the four. We're going to talk to Ben today about uh, what, if anything, they know from early voting. And tomorrow we're going to talk to Pat Kreitlow from the Up North News to take a look at the results and analyze them. Also, President Biden this morning, if you uh, were able to uh, calculate the difference between the time in Poland and the time here, 1030 this morning. President Biden spoke about his trip to Ukraine, and he he spoke to the people of Poland. It was uh, clearly nighttime where he was, but it was bright morning sunshine here. He said so many things. Um, he said so much that was really, really important uh, that I want to share with you. Uh, oh, my gosh. Um First of all, he talked about, I'm going to share with you some some shorter and longer sound bites from the speech. He talked about the fact that he went to Kiev and that he walked the streets of Kiev and that the people of Ukraine and the people of Kiev stand strong. Kiev being the country's capital, President Biden walked the streets with Ukrainian President Volodymyr of Zelensky, and as Richard Engel pointed out on NBC yesterday, there have been U.S. presidents that went to war zones before, but usually it was a war where there were U.S. troops involved, and they contained their visits to military bases where they were pretty well protected. Mm-mm. Not Dark Brandon. He took a 10-hour train trip from Poland to Ukraine, and uh, while there was protection from Ukrainian forces, and apparently an hour or two before the trip, Russia was given a heads up that this might be a time they might want to hold their fire, and uh, Joe Biden walked the streets with uh, Vladimir Zelensky, and even if, you know, the threat from Russia was taken off the table with that phone call, You know, one of the things Richard Engel pointed out is, you know, they were walking, some of the areas they were walking through are residential. And he said there is no way for the Ukrainian forces to vet every apartment, to visit every apartment, make sure every apartment was safe. President Biden really took a risk. Um, he, He put his money and his feet where his mouth was. And one of the first things he said in this speech was that um, he wants the world to know that whatever they might have thought a year ago before Russia invaded, that now Kiev stands strong. Listen to this. One year ago, the world was bracing for the fall of Kiev. 
Well, I just come from a visit to Kiev, and I can report Kiev stands strong. Kiev stands proud. It stands tall. And most important, it stands free. Most important, it stands free. He uh, returned to that theme a lot because, you know, this Friday is the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion. It was February 24th, 2022, when Russian troops rolled across the border. President Biden commented on that, too, the fact that we are one year in and uh, whatever Putin thought before, he should have his doubts because we are strong. The Ukrainians are strong. NATO is strong. And the Western world is strong in their stand that this has got to stop, that Putin has got to go home. Listen to this. One year into this war, Putin no longer doubts the strength of our coalition. But he still doubts our conviction. He doubts our staying power. He doubts our continued support for Ukraine. He doubts whether NATO can remain unified. But there should be no doubt. Our support for Ukraine will not waver. NATO will not be divided, and we will not tire. (laughs) President Putin's craven lust for land and power will fail. And the Ukrainian people's love for their country will prevail. Democracies of the world will stand guard over freedom today, tomorrow, and forever. So that's what it's that's what's at stake here. Freedom. That's the message I carried to Kiev yesterday, directly to the people of Ukraine. When President Zelensky said he came to the United States in December, quote, he said, this struggle will define the world and what our children and grandchildren, how they live, and then their children and grandchildren. He wasn't only speaking about the children and grandchildren of Ukraine. He was speaking about all of our children and grandchildren, yours and mine. We're seeing again today what the people of Poland and the people across Europe saw for decades. Appetites of the autocrat cannot be appeased. They must be opposed. Autocrats only understand one word. No, no, no. I thought that was one of his best phrases, autocrats cannot be appeased, they must be opposed. Absolutely. If we've, all we have to do is look back to uh, World War II. Oh, yeah, let's just give Hitler this little bit of land and then he'll, he'll be satisfied and we can all just, you know, go back to doing what we were doing before. How'd that work out? Uh, people like Vladimir Putin, by all accounts, I mean, this is a man in his 70s. By some reports, he has cancer, and his life goal is to see the USSR return to its former glory. Remember when the USSR absorbed pretty much most of the countries around it? Speaking of uh, that situation, President Biden uh, spoke about Moldova. That's um, one of the countries very near Ukraine. 
And uh, he met with the Moldovan president, Maya Sandu. They met in Warsaw. And uh, he told uh, President Sandu that, you know, the United States supports Moldova's sovereignty. You know, Moldova's not a member of NATO, but he wanted the people of Moldova to know because they feel that a Russian invasion is imminent. There's always already been accusations that Russia has been sending operatives to Moldova and that they're going to try to pro- promote civil unrest. And then that's going to give Vladimir Putin an excuse to invade because, you know, he's just helping settle down the country. President Biden met with the president of Moldova to say, we support you. We will continue to assist you. And we will stand behind you. Um, Another message, not so subtle for Vladimir Putin. As part of his talk today, President Biden addressed the Russian people directly. He wanted the Russian people to know, assuming that the message gets through the lockdown that uh, Vladimir Putin has on the country's media. But he wanted the Russian people to know that we are not the enemy, because that's how Putin has been um, framing this whole issue. Oh, sure, the conflict's taking place in Ukraine, but it's really the United States that's coming after Russia and wants to destroy it and its way of life. Uh, Apparently, that's the message he's selling at home. So Joe Biden spoke in part of his speech today directly to the Russian people. Listen to this. So tonight, I speak once more to the people of Russia. The United States and the nations of Europe do not seek to control or destroy Russia. The West was not plotting to attack Russia, as Putin said today. And millions of Russian citizens who only want to live in peace with their neighbors are not the enemy. This war was never a necessity. It's a tragedy. President Putin chose this war. Every day the war continues is his choice. He could end the war with a word. It's simple. If Russia stopped invading Ukraine, it would end the war. If Ukraine stopped defending itself against Russia, it would be the end of Ukraine. That's why together we're making sure Ukraine can defend itself. Amen to that. If Putin stops the war, Russian troops just go home. If Putin wins, a country is literally wiped off the face of the earth. We are going to take a break. I'm going to share more of what uh, President Biden had to say today when we come right back after this. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. As I said uh, at the top of the show, there is a lot going on today. There is voting in Wisconsin. Four folks, Everett Mitchell, Daniel Kelly, uh, Janet Protosiewicz, Jennifer Doro are running 
to try to get to the April 4th election for Supreme Court in Wisconsin. There are four candidates today. As of tomorrow, there will be two. And on April 4th, one of those two people will be put on a 10-year term to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. This will be the panel that looks at all the abortion rulings, that looks at all of the voter suppression rulings, that looks at all of the gerrymandering rulings and makes final decisions on those rulings for the people of Wisconsin. Right now, the court is split with four conservatives and four liberals. Whoever is elected is going to have a lot of power, a lot of power on this court. We're going to talk to Ben Wickler about it a little bit later today. And we are going to talk to Pat Kreitlow from Up North News tomorrow and analyze who the final two are and what we can expect on April 4th. And also some of the other things going on in Wisconsin, our beloved neighbor to the north. We got it's I don't know what is going on. It could be a big bunch of something. It could be a big bunch of nothing. But uh just like an hour ago, the mayor's office put out a notice that she's going to have she's going to be talking to the media at two thirty today. As near as I can find from all of the postings, uh, Heather Sharon put this on Twitter a while ago. Plus, now the mayor's office has made an official announcement, but um, they've updated her official schedule, but they haven't said what she is going to talk about. Just simply, the mayor will hold a media availability at 2.30 today. So we are going to bring you at least some of that live. Um, again, no indication what, if anything, the mayor is going to talk about. And so now let's shift back to the other huge story of the day. President Biden speaking to the people of Poland talking about his relationship with Poland, talking about his trip to Ukraine. And uh, what a perfect time. This Friday is the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion. Today, Vladimir Putin also made a speech that had pretty much in it what you would expect. You know, he still wants to take the whole country and it's still everything is still the United States fault, which is kind of interesting since he's the one who invaded. So it was um, a real show of solidarity for President Biden to do this and to do it now at this particular time as we approach the one year anniversary. It was a reminder to Vladimir Putin that Despite all of his hopes and all the experts, you know, we've had on our show, they say that Putin is waiting for Western support to weaken. They are waiting for Western support to crack because they think that's going to be their big opportunity. And uh, supposedly Russia is poised for a new offensive, a spring offensive. Uh, as Richard Engel described it yesterday, he said if Russia's first effort was supposed to be a blitzkrieg, supposed to be a lightning invasion that was going to take them right to the capital and conquer the country probably in about two weeks. He said this effort is going to be more like a bulldozer. They're planning 
more troops on the ground and basically just going to try to push into the middle section of the country from the eastern section where the Russian troops are amassed. That um, no more no more lightning. Now it's going to be a slog. But Vladimir Putin committed to taking all of Ukraine. President Biden in his speech talked about how um, he was going to be hosting the NATO nations in the relatively near future and reminded Putin that NATO is still united and NATO still has Ukraine's back. Listen to this. The United States, together with our allies and partners, are going to continue to have Ukraine's back as it defends itself. Next year, I will host every member of NATO for our 2024 summit in the United States. Together, we'll celebrate the 75th anniversary of the strongest defensive alliance in the history of the world, NATO. And and let there be no doubt... The commitment of the United States to our NATO alliance and Article 5 is rock solid. And every member of NATO knows it. And Russia knows it as well. An attack against one is attack against all. It's a sacred oath. Sacred oath to defend every inch of NATO territory. And another part of the speech... He talks about how, um, you know, Vladimir Putin supposedly did this because uh, one of his goals was to weaken NATO. And now not only has he not weakened the existing NATO countries, he has increased their commitment and support of one another. And he's created a situation where NATO is likely in the very near future to expand to include Finland and Sweden. How's that working out for you, Vlad? Today, President Biden, by the way, you know, he was on fire for the State of the Union. And I got to say, he was on fire this morning as well. He was. He made a speech that was rousing, that was motivating, that was reassuring. That was inspiring. He closed his speech today. Talking about freedom. Listen to this. Freedom. Freedom. There is no sweeter word than freedom. There is no nobler goal than freedom. There's no higher aspiration than freedom. Americans know that and you know it. And all that we do now must be done so our children and grandchildren will know it as well. Freedom. The enemy of the tyrant. And the hope of the brave and the truth of the ages. Freedom. Stand with us. We will stand with you. Let us move forward with faith and conviction. And with an abiding commitment to be allies. Not of darkness, but of light. Not of oppression, but of liberation. Not of captivity, but yes, of freedom. May God bless you all. May God protect our troops. And may God bless the heroes of Ukraine and all those who defend freedom around the world. Thank you, Poland. Thank you, thank you, thank you for what you're doing. God bless you all. 
It was a big crowd. I mean, it was cold and it was outside. Um, but when the uh, when the cameras pulled back, I mean, the plaza was full. The surrounding streets appeared to be full as well. President Biden getting a great reception in Poland. Recommitting the United States and <laughs> reminding perhaps some of our more wayward Congress people that um, this is important and this is who we are. You may have heard that there are some right-wing Republicans in Congress. I'm looking at you, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who are starting to question the um, financial commitment to a Ukraine. They are very short-sighted. Vladimir Putin is not going to quit. He has to be stopped. Whether he backs off because of the protests in his own country, which he seems to have pretty well maneuvered around. A lot of the activists left when he instituted a draft. A lot of young men left. There were reports on CNN yesterday about Russian families seeking asylum in other countries to get away from the Vladimir Putin regime. But the problem is that leaves all the people who are buying what Putin's selling. So I'm not real hopeful that there is going to be any kind of coup or overthrow. I don't think we're going to see mothers and families taking to the streets the way they did to protest the Afghanistan war. I think Ukraine needs to, let's just give them what they need to push Putin back out. Let's get this over with once and for all. I don't want to be here a year from now talking about the two-year anniversary of this war. Anyway, um, we're going to take a break. Like I said, uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot uh, alleges, purports that she is making some kind of statement at 2.30. We'll keep an eye on that. We're going to bring it to you live when it happens. Back after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at ComEd.com slash clean energy. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Okay, Andy back at the studio is uh, keeping an eye on the mayor's Facebook page where this media availability is apparently going to be carried live. When she comes out to the microphone, he's going to let me know so we can switch to it and uh, and bring it to you. And, you know, if it's something important, we're going to stick with it. If it turns out to be something maybe not so important... Um, then we will <laughs> bring it back and go back to our regular programming. But uh, shortly, we're going to hope, hopefully uh, talk to Ben Wickler. He is with the Democratic Party of Wisconsin. He is the chair. He has done some brilliant fundraising. He's really good at getting attention to Wisconsin races and getting people all over the country to support them. There is voting taking place in Wisconsin today. Four people are running to become one of the two who will be in a race 
for this single seat available on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. That single seat is going to be decided on April 4th. But today there are four candidates. Tomorrow there will be two. One of the uh, reporters in Wisconsin, a guy by the name of Pat Smith, who's the political director at WISN 12 News in Wisconsin, he has interviewed all the different candidates who want to be on uh, the Supreme Court. And um, I excerpt little snippets from Matt's interviews to kind of talk a little bit about where we are in this race. Uh, the first one I want to play for you is uh, conservative Daniel Kelly. He was interviewed by Matt Smith. And one of the things now we talked about how, you know, the Uline family of uh, Illinois, the people who put together boxes and other um, stuff like that, and they've made a freaking fortune. They are really, really very far right in their views, and they support far right candidates with their money. Apparently, the Uline family has already donated seven figures to Daniel Kelly. And um, Matt Smith asked Daniel Kelly about that and whether there was going to be more Uline money coming his way. Listen to this. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I saw there was an article um, a few months ago that there, there were talk of seven figures. Um, there was a tweet the other day to the same effect. So uh, I don't really know. Yeah, I mean, these are independent expenditures, as you as you noted. And one of the consequences of that is that along with the rest of Wisconsin, I sit back and learn about what it's going to be as it happens. Hmm. Oh, I don't know. Those U-lines, they're giving me millions of dollars. I don't know if it's going to happen. I don't know why they're doing it. They must believe something about me. Speaking along those lines, the other conservative candidate is Jennifer Doro, who got the uh, endorsement of an anti-abortion group. Um, And she was asked about that, you know, kind of Matt Smith was like, well, you know, they must believe that you're going to rule their way on the Supreme Court. They must believe that if any anti-abortion measures come before you, that you are going to make sure that they get enacted. And um, very, I thought, disingenuously, Miss Adoro um, said, oh, no, 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 that's not the case. No, no, no. I don't know why they endorsed me. Listen to this. I believe they endorsed me because of my judicial philosophy of believing in following the law as written and applying that law to the facts of the cases that come before the court, not prejudging cases. It's her judicial philosophy they like, because, you know, the average voter has such an understanding of judicial philosophy. No, they have no reason. Yes. They love me, and they're radically anti-abortion, but it's not because they think I'm going to vote their way. They like my judicial philosophy. We see the world the same way philosophically. What a load. What an actual load. One of the um, liberals, one of the Democrats in the race, is um, a woman by the name of... Janet Protosiewicz, and um, she has condemned her conservative rivals in this. 
for their partisan politics. And Matt asked her basically, well, if they're, you know, candidates of the right, doesn't that make you a candidate of the left? This is what she had to say. I'm not a partisan. I don't come into court with a finger on the scale. I have a very specific judicial philosophy. That is that I follow the law and I uphold the Constitution. That's what I do. So when I call somebody an extreme activist, I mean it. And I don't do that lightly. That is what she has called both Kelly and Doro, that they are extreme activists. And there is a lot of uh, factual information to support that. The fourth candidate is uh, Everett Mitchell, who, while he hasn't raised the kind of money that the other people in the race have raised, uh, he believes that he has a shot here and that um, that the people of Wisconsin value what he has to contribute. Listen to this. My whole value system has always been that we respect those rights of those individuals in our community. Like as long as I've lived, you know, the road decision has been the guidance for reproductive choice and reproductive health, you know, and just like, you know, those who say, well, you, you know, you're projecting what you may do. I said, no, we're criticizing rules of law and standards that we disagree with. Just like there may be a Supreme Court may have granted Plessy versus Ferguson, but that doesn't mean that I have to then accept separate but equal doctrine as truth in the way our society needs to run. So I think those who are Listening to me should understand that part of my values have always been to support reproductive choice, but we also follow the rule of law and we try to make sure that we are not tipping the hand of how we would decide, but are willing to be open and listening to the cases that come before us and the facts that would be presented at that time. Just to clarify, maybe elaborate on what he said, while he respects precedent and the rulings that have come before, like, you know, I mean, we've had Supreme Courts that ruled that separate but equal was A-OK. Yeah, you can have a colored drinking fountain and a white drinking fountain. That's OK. And what he's saying is that while he respects what has gone before, it doesn't mean he always agrees with it or thinks that what has gone before, the rulings that have gone before have been morally correct. Interesting, interesting position. Um, four really interesting and very different candidates. And uh, it is going to determine Wisconsin politics, Wisconsin policies, Wisconsin laws, Wisconsin procedures for the next 10 years. 10 years. The woman who is retiring was a conservative So there was a conservative majority on this court, which is why even though a majority, all the polls show that a majority of the voters in Wisconsin are Democratic, Democrats, but a lot of the elected officials, 50% or more, are Republicans. Basically, Wisconsin right now has minority rule because of the gerrymandering, because of the voter suppression. And that has been upheld by their conservative majority Supreme Court. We cannot overstate the importance of this, this election, to what is going to be the politics, what life is going to be like for the people of Wisconsin for the next 10 years. It's everything. We talked about what was at stake Okay, Andy says the mayor's coming out. Let's go to her live. 
this week. Uh, first of all, let me say that my heart goes out to um, every first responder, um, health care worker, resident, sickened by COVID-19 and still dealing with the lingering effects um, of this disease. It's a brutal and dangerous disease, as we've learned oh too well over these last uh, few years. And that's why Dr. Arwitty and I, on a regular basis, but particularly at the height of COVID, fought so hard to make sure that our first responders and other essential workers had everything that they needed to protect themselves from COVID, including PPE, uh, protocols, testing, vaccine, um, access, and other protections to keep them safe. You've heard me say from this and other podiums many times, of the three things that I was most worried about during the height of COVID, making sure that our healthcare workers and our first responders were supported was one of the things that we were supremely focused on in those early days. <clears throat> and to that point, we spent literally millions of dollars and countless time and energy to make sure that folks were educated and urged um, to provide to take advantage of testing and then when the vaccines came on long line to get vaccinated. Let me also take you back to 2020. Nationwide, the number one cause of death of police officers at that time was COVID-19. And you may remember that we lost four officers here before the vaccine uh, was available. Those deaths not only were horribly tragic and sent shockwaves through uh, the department, not to mention the incredible toll taken on um, taken on the families and the survivors of those officers. So any suggestion that I or anyone in my administration is indifferent uh, to the cause and suffering of first responders when it comes to COVID issues, it's just utter nonsense. Let me shift gears and uh, address this pension question. In my administration, we simply don't play politics with the pension code. And we don't play politics with the law. Our city and our state, unfortunately, as many of you know and have reported upon, have a long sordid history of politicians and other clouded individuals bending the pension system to their will to the total disadvantage of taxpayers. And as far as I'm concerned, those days are over. The four pension boards must be independent. And the claimants appearing before them have a right to expect that they will receive individualized review of their specific cases. And each pension board must act without fear or favor. Now, I'm told that since I took office, across all of our four pension boards, there have literally been hundreds of claims that have been filed. I never ask, nor do I receive any information about any of them, nor would I. <clears throat> no one gets special treatment. Uh, because of who they are or to whom they're related. And that doesn't change whether we're in the week before an election or at any other time of the year. I don't get involved with, and I definitely don't interfere with pension board decisions. The members of the pension boards have a clear mandate to follow the pension code, which is defined by the legislature in Springfield. Now, maybe it worked differently in the past, but under my administration, pension benefits aren't determined on the basis of my personal relationships or personal feelings about anyone or their brother. And frankly, that's how it should be. Now, if the law needs to be changed, then Springfield should act. 
to ensure greater protection of our first responders under the pension code. And we will join um, anyone of goodwill in making sure that we do the right thing and make the changes that are necessary um, to protect um, our first responders. But again, it's not about me making these individualized decisions. Folks, I, I know that we're in the final week of a long campaign, and you've heard me call this the silly season, and we're probably on the silly season on steroids one week out. And I understand the tensions are high over a very difficult um, issue that is very personal to some. But as a former member of law enforcement myself, I have and will continue to endeavor to do the right thing by our first responders, and I will work with anyone to do that. So let's work to fix um, what is broken, if it's broken, but the leveling of accusations on people for fouling the law um, is simply unnecessary, unfair, and false. So I'm happy to take your questions. Thanks a lot. Mayor. Members of the media, Tiernan and I will bring down the mic to you. Uh, two questions per reporter. We'll kick it off with Amanda, WTTW, right in front. Thank you. Mayor, I know that you say that you did not interfere based on anybody individually, but was there ever any sort of directive given to pension boards to keep an eye on finances and be particularly judicious about any decision they may make? No, no, not at all. Not at all. Do you believe that Springfield, you said, if the law needs to be changed, then Springfield should act to ensure greater protection. Does Springfield need to act? What is your belief in terms of the particulars of the case of Sergeant Mendoza and others in his situation? Is this a law that does need to be changed? Look, I'm not going to get into the particulars of anybody's individual case, as I said. That's simply not appropriate for me. That was adjudicated before the pension board, and as I understand it, um, was taken to the circuit court, and the circuit court has ruled. I think these are difficult circumstances because we've never been through a pandemic before. We've never had uh, this uh, pension board, to my knowledge, never had to face these kinds of difficult decisions. So I think that um, if there's something that needs to be changed, if there's greater guidance and clarity that they need to get, that should, of course, be done um, in conjunction with public health and medical experts. Um, but again, I don't know the particulars of the law as applied by the pension board, uh, but certainly we'll study uh, the legislation that's been filed and lend our support where we can. Marianne, NBC. Can you give us an update on the AFSCME negotiations? There might be some. Okay, um, we are going to, Andy's going to continue to watch this news conference in case uh, somebody. Uh, break some political news. But what the mayor is referring to is uh, Illinois controller Susanna Mendoza in the Sun-Times today. Um, the headline is Lightfoot betrayed Chicago cops disabled by COVID-19, including Mendoza's brother. And it's about how uh, her brother and other cops who have had long COVID have had uh, their requests for disability um, refused. And um, on multiple occasions, those requests for disability coverage have been refused. And it is a big article in the Sun-Times. It is a big accusation, certainly not one the mayor wants to face with the mayoral election just days away. But that's what she's talking about. We are um, probably in the next few days going to get Susanna Mendoza uh, to join me on the radio to talk about the situation in greater detail. But that's it in a nutshell. We are going to take a real quick break. We're going to be back with Ben Wickler right after this. 
There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. WCPT820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT820. Ben Wickler is the chair of the Democratic Party of Wisconsin. I may have mentioned earlier that there's an election going on in Wisconsin today. I may have mentioned it every day, multiple times a day for the last few weeks because of it is in, it is so incredibly important. Ben, what do you see as far as early voting and the reception these candidates are getting? What uh, how does it look like it's shaping up to you? The, the first thing to know in these Supreme Court races is that the turnout in a primary in February is extremely low. But given that low bar, we're seeing a very strong response in terms of early votes, absentee votes. Uh, that bodes well for the you know, one or both progressive candidates in the race. I feel extremely confident that we're going to have a progressive candidate advance to the general election. And the big question is really which of the two conservatives? They're in a knockdown, drag out, bitter fight about who can be more extreme in total bans on abortion, in rigging the gerrymandered maps uh, you know, to the absolute hilt. Uh, this is a, a fight between common sense and impartiality and freedom against these kind of authoritarian, ultra-mega Republicans. And after today, we'll be in the general election, and we'll have 42 days to bring this thing home. I was listening to some of the interviews that um, 12 News political director Matt Smith was doing with the candidates, and Daniel Kelly and Jennifer Doro really are taking the gloves off. I read one um, bit of commentary that said that they're going after each other to such an extent that they might, whichever one of them, if one of them makes it to the runoff, they might be already damaged. What do you think about that? Can we pin our hopes on that? Well, we should expect, even if everything goes right, this race could be incredibly close. So, you know, even if we think we're in landslide territory, we should treat it like we're one vote behind. And if we work one more hour, we can find that vote. That's how we approached 2020 when the polls said that, Joe Biden was going to trounce Donald Trump in Wisconsin, and it turned out we won by six-tenths of one percentage point. So this is Wisconsin. The races are close no matter what. That said, the Republicans are dividing the GOP so bitterly. You know, Dan Kelly, the guy backed by Rich and Liz Uline, who are the Mm -hmm. biggest members of Stop the Steal, he said that he will not endorse Jennifer Doro if she wins the nomination, and he doesn't. And on the other side of the coin, Jennifer Doro just keeps taking arrows from Dan Kelly and, and punching right back. I think they're going to be upset Republicans either way, and they don't really seem to be laying the groundwork for a shared set of values that should guide them into the general election. I, I really do think we have a chance to flip the majority on Wisconsin State Supreme Court because the GOP is in such disarray, because the values and the, the philosophy that they're pushing is so alien to most Wisconsinites, and because the, the progressive candidates are standing up for fairness, equality, the rule of law, and common sense. That's a winning package in Wisconsin. Do you think it bothers Wisconsin voters that an Illinois family is so deeply funding one of the candidates, or does that just not even register? You know, we tried to do everything we could to highlight this in the Senate race last year, because the Uline, Rich and Liz Uline poured millions, like maybe more than $10 million, we think, 
into dark money groups to support Ron Johnson. And it did have an effect, but it wasn't enough to be decisive in that race. Ultimately, the, the, the thing that people vote on the most is the thing that affects them the most. And I think in this race, it's going to be this question about whether if you get pregnant, you should be able to decide for yourself what to do, or if you need a politician to give you a permission slip to get an abortion. We have a, an abortion ban passed in the year 1849, before the invention of modern medicine, before women had the right to vote. And that law has been superseded many times over. But it's a near certainty that if Jennifer Dora wins or Dan Kelly wins, they will vote to, to make that ban enforceable, to throw doctors in jail for performing routine health care. And that is, that is so intolerable to the majority of Wisconsinites. We want to make sure people know about that and they vote accordingly. Well, you hit on an important point. Sometimes I think, you know, you're interested in politics. I'm interested in politics. But regular people, like, you know, they have jobs and businesses they worry about. They have kids. They have activities. They have family stuff going on. Um, from what I what I've read, a lot of times regular folks don't really start paying attention to an election till literally right before the election. And the fear is that if that is the case, they may not really grasp what is at stake it reminds me of the interviews after um after the brexit vote and people were like well i didn't know it would mean this if i'd have known it was going to mean this i would have voted the other way so how do you make sure that the people of wisconsin really understand what is at stake this is job one two and three and the, Mm. the first thing we can do is knock on doors call people's phones, send them text messages, post on social media. The second is raise money so we can run ads and that the candidates can run ads. I mean, this is an election where we start with almost zero name recognition, almost zero recognition of the fact that there is an election, let alone what the stakes in that election are. So the thing about that kind of environment is that every dollar that you contribute at wisdoms.org slash donate, I should mention, every dollar you contribute, every the hour you spend volunteering, it has a bigger effect in a race where most people don't know what's going on than it does in a presidential race or a Senate or governor's race. This is the moment. If someone wants to make a difference in, a, in an election that affects the future of democracy, volunteer and help us win the Supreme Court race in Wisconsin between now and April 4th. Okay. If members of my audience want to help out, where do you send them? So if you go to wisdems, W-I-S-D-E-M-S dot org, slash volunteer. You'll see all these options to sign up. You can sign up for phone banks from wherever you live. You can phone bank every night of the week. Um, <laughs> in fact, if you want to go to a phone bank, go to wisdoms.org slash phone bank. If you live near enough to Wisconsin that you, you might want to drive up and knock on some doors, you can also find places to sign up at wisdoms.org slash volunteer. We will ask you to go and knock on the doors of people who are strong Democrats but who might not vote if they don't get a reminder to do so. So this is not a conversation with a Trump supporter where you're trying to convince them that they should see the error of their ways. You're talking to people who share your values but might not have the full information about this election and will train you and so and practice with you so you know what to say when you're at the door. It is so easy, and this election in particular, it's so much fun because just to hear what is happening is to get fired up and, and determined to vote. Everyone who volunteers winds up racking up multiple people who weren't going to vote otherwise, but now they will. Uh, so wisdoms.org slash volunteer, sign up to knock on doors, sign up to phone bank. And if you have a few extra bucks, go to wisdoms.org slash donate and chip them in. Uh, this is, really is an election where a small amount can make a huge difference. And let me just close with a, a note on that. In 2019, when I was running for state party chair, I knocked on doors for a state Supreme Court race, but it didn't have the kind of 
national focus, statewide focus that this one is getting. And in the final analysis, the progressive candidate lost by less than 6,000 votes. That's less than one vote per ward across the state of Wisconsin. If we'd had a little bit of an extra push, we would have won that. We'd have a majority today. We would have had a Democratic trifecta in 2022 with fair mass in our state legislature. That tiny amount of effort could have made all that giant difference. It's exactly the same now, and this time we're going to get it right. Especially in Wisconsin, where you can win by two votes, and if you win by 20 votes, it's a landslide. Uh, a little bit of effort can make a lot of difference. Ben, um, I, I'm crossing my fingers. This is so important. Let's hope it uh, goes our way tonight, today, and uh, good luck on April 4th. Thank you. Really, really grateful. We're going to take a break for news, and we're going to be back with more right after this. You're the only voice of reason on the radio. You give me hope. Having listened to you every day. Thank you for your clear insight. Always felt a little bit smarter. I listen to you every single day. I keep coming back to this station, and thank you for what you do. On WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk. The Rick Smith Show, live, weeknights from 8 to 10 p.m. Look at what's happening. The Rick Smith Show on WCPT 820. Everyone is talking about it. Chicago's progressive talk. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. On WCPT 820. Yes, there is an election in Wisconsin today, but a week from today, there is... uh, People are going to be going to the polls, actually, in many places around the state, but we have been focusing on what is happening is going to happen in Chicago. There are nine candidates who want to be the next mayor. And as we are getting down to the wire here, uh, not surprisingly, things are getting a little heated, particularly race seems to be becoming a real issue in a lot of different ways in this race. Uh, candidate Willie Wilson has put out a press statement demanding that Lori Lightfoot denounce Indigo Magazine because one of the editors of Indigo Magazine wrote an editorial that said that um, the black vote should unite behind one candidate. Basically, everybody who's black should get together, decide which of them is going to be in the race, and everybody else drops out. And uh, um, Willie Wilson is calling that racist and wants the mayor to condemn Indigo magazine, okay? Also, uh, on her own, uh, Lori Lightfoot has had to apologize recently. She was appearing before a crowd, and (laughs) she said, I believe the quote was, any vote coming from the south side for somebody not named Lightfoot is a vote for Chewy Garcia or Paul Vallis. If you're black and you don't vote for the black incumbent mayor, then you're essentially voting for somebody white or Hispanic. Damn you. Well, she's walked that back. But race continues to be an issue. In If you're a paying subscriber for the Picayune Sentinel, not only do you get the Thursday official edition, but you get a special Tuesday edition. And in today's Tuesday edition, (sighs) Mr. Zorn, Eric Zorn, who writes it, 
talked about an exchange he's had recently with former television political reporter Charles Thomas. Charles Thomas, of course, got um, some negative press when he recorded some television commercials for Republican gubernatorial candidate Richard Irvin. Um, he has also been in, I won't call it a war of words, let's just call it a a passionate exchange of words with Eric Zorn about Charles Thomas' support of the candidacy of Reverend Dr. Willie Wilson. And I was reading what Eric said, what Charles said, what Eric said, what Charles said, and I just, I found it fascinating. And, and, and it takes a lot to surprise me, but I also found it really surprising. I asked Eric if he would join me today to talk about this exchange of emails and other all things uh, Chicago politics. Eric, how are you today? Good as talking, John. I, I like that you've added Reverend to uh, Willie Wilson's phony list of titles. Uh, he's not a doctor, and he's not a reverend, but, but continue. Okay, well, here's why why I either call him Reverend Doctor or Doctor, because I believe, as, as you've talked about this, I've talked a bit about this, his, his doctoral degree is an honorary one. He, he's quite... He's quite open about the fact that he doesn't have past uh, seventh or eighth grade education. So clearly he's not a Ph.D., but it is how he prefers to be referred to. And I think as long as the listeners know where the honorific comes from and that it is his personal choice, you know, if, if a candidate wants to be called Big Red Jones, if that is their preferred method of being described, I don't care. I'll call him Big Red Jones. It's just that's just not a hill I want to die on. So you're absolutely right. He doesn't have a Ph.D. and it was an honorary degree, but he's very proud of it. And he has asked that he be addressed that way. It is is one of my smaller sins, Eric. Can I can I be addressed uh, as Your Majesty? I mean, I would like Your Majesty Eric Zorn joins us now to explain to us about a very interesting he ha- exchange he has had with former television political reporter Charles Thomas. Your Majesty, please tell the listeners of what we speak. Sire, go ahead. This is uh, this is great. No, I I'll, I'll give you a little backstory on this. Uh, first of all. Uh, you're probably friends with Charles Thomas. He, yeah, you know him. You work. I don't know him, service. honestly. I've never met him. He was after my time at Channel Seven, and oh, our paths good. never crossed because I was a medical reporter. He was a political reporter, and we didn't. We didn't. I mean, I know his name. He might know my name, but that's about it. Okay. Well, anyway, I, I've always thought that he was a pretty pretty good reporter. I, I liked his. So I was a faithful Channel Seven watcher for a long time, and I thought that his work was good. Respe- I had a lot of respect for him. I was really surprised recently to see him come out. Uh, well, first of all, I was really surprised that he endorsed Darren Bailey because uh, Darren Bailey was a kook. I mean, the guy who ran for governor is a Republican. I thought he was he manifestly unqualified to be governor, and, and his candidacy was troubling and weird. And and Charles, as a former political reporter, he, he had to know. I felt that that a lot of what of what Bailey was saying was nonsense, and and that his programs and ideas were far fetched, and that he was completely unsuitable to be governor. I was surprised to see that. Usually, journalists, especially uh, you know those who've been in the business for a long time, like Charles, have this sort of sense of like 
not only joining a team, and he really joined the team for Bailey. And then, and then he appeared on this documentary. I don't know if you talked about it on your show. Uh, uh, the Illinois Policy Institute has put out this this documentary about the Chicago Teachers Union, really bashing the teachers union and uh, implying that they're they're the reason that school performance is so poor in Chicago and so on. I, I wrote a little thing saying I was really surprised to see that from from Charles. And then I wrote uh, something oh, I, in that item. I wrote something that uh, indicated I was also surprised to see that he had endorsed Paul Vallis. And that was a mistake. I, I had thought that I had heard him endorse Paul Vallis. It was a mistake. He wrote to me and said, look, I don't endorse Paul Vallis. I endorse Willie Wilson. I said, I owe you an apology and a, and a correction. Uh, but uh, wh- while I'm doing that, I'm curious how someone uh, with your experience uh, and your knowledge of how complicated government and budget policies are, how could you be endorsing someone who doesn't have the qualifications and the qualities that you would want in a mayor? The, and, I, and I pointed him to the issues page of Willie Wilson's campaign website. It's, it, the page is usually pretty well built out by most candidates. There are 300 words on this page, and a lot of it is just banality. It's like, we need to help Chicagoans create the new post-pandemic normal. This means listening closely to citizens' needs and working together with inclusion as the guiding light. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's just babble campaign babble and i was like why would you think that willie wilson is qualified i didn't mention anything about his education level or anything like that mm-hmm. so charles charles writes back he says you know well uh how can you say that willie wilson is unqualified when you didn't say that about bruce Rauner or jb pritzker who ran for governor and they neither of them had any government experience uh and so I hadn't I hadn't uh, mentioned either of those two guys, nor had I mentioned their education or, or Wilson's education. But I did point out that Rauner, I never supported Rauner, but but uh, Rauner has an economics degree from Dartmouth and a Harvard MBA. Pritzker is a Northwestern Law School graduate. And it does take some education and, and knowledge to run a massive enterprise like the Corporation of the City of Chicago. Um, and so I sort of challenged him on that. And I just asked him, I said, you know, again, Willie Wilson seems like a very nice man. He's, he's way too right wing for me, but not too right wing for Charles Thomas. But but and he's generous. But I don't think he has any policy chops. And I think the problems facing our city are, are very severe, and they require someone who's going to know how to balance the needs of, their, of all kinds of constituencies. We've got housing issues, crime issues, environmental issues, all sorts of things. And, and Willie Wilson's whole thing seems to be lower taxes and, and let the police brutalize criminals. And that seems to be his platform. I haven't heard much else from him. So why would a guy like Charles Thomas, who, again, I respect, I think he's a really smart guy. And he's, every time I've seen him on panel shows and so on, why would he get behind Willie Wilson? So I challenged him in an email, and I, then I gave him the last word, and, and I'll say, you know, his his, oh, his last message to me was Dartmouth, question mark, Harvard, question mark, Northwestern, question mark. And he says, Will, Willie Wilson ran away from a southern plantation. He survived his escape. He thrived. He turned this company to a $60 million a year international medical supply enterprise. Uh, and he said people like Willie Wilson survived their escape and thrived in their freedom. Uh, he's a living composite of the millions of Southerners who've arrived here during the Great Migration. He says it's truly a black thing when I contend that Wilson's life experience trumps Rounders and Pritzkers. And that's uh, and I gave that's that's the last word in our in my conversation with Charles. And and uh, uh, I, I'll give him the last word on that. Uh, if, if that if that satisfies you as a Willie Wilson supporter, then then fine. I I, I just feel like if you want if you want it if you're a conservative leaning person. 
I think I would think you would want a Paul Vallis, who you know, <laughs> who is uh, about as nerdy as they get, and and knows budget, and he knows schools, and he knows crime, and he, he just knows his, these issues. Now, uh, and he's basically on the same side as Willie Wilson. Only I think he has the understanding of, of the political system to get those things done. I'm not going to vote for Paul Vallis or Willie Wilson, but if if that's where you're leaning, and I don't think too many listeners of WCPQ would be leaning that way. Then I, I can't see why you would go for Wilson instead of Ballas. So that's my that's my argument. <laughs> would you? I've been thinking about this since I read it this morning, and I think that there was a, a communications disconnect here. I personally, after reading this exchange, I don't think Charles grasped what your objection was because he's saying you know a lot you know we've had business people get elected before and it's like it's life experience that i value in this guy but i think what you were saying was that's all well and good but that life experience if it is going to be useful in this job should translate into clearly stated policies, a clearly stated agenda. This is what I've learned since I ran away from a southern plantation and raised myself up by my bootstraps. You know, I've learned a lot of things. So when it comes to public safety, I want to do point number one, point number two, point number three, point number four, because based on my incredible experience, that's what's going to solve this problem. And I think you were saying, where are the policies? And Charles was hearing from you. Well, I don't respect this guy because like he didn't go to he didn't go to Harvard and all he has is life experience and, and money and life experience and money are great. But that but if you want to be a candidate, you have to tell people what you want to accomplish and how you want to accomplish it. And I think that's where you're seeing the the perhaps lack in the Wilson campaign. I don't think Charles understood your critique. He seemed to take it very personally, like it was some sort of personal attack on this, you know, black man who had a tough life. And uh, now somehow Eric Zorn is saying, you know, he shouldn't be running for mayor. He doesn't have the chops. And you're saying he doesn't have the chops based on what he's telling us. I don't see chops in his website. I don't I think there was a disconnect there. And we are going to get Eric's reaction to my insightful thoughts right after a quick break. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. In today's newsletter for paying members of the Picayune Sentinel, His Highness Eric Zorn recounts an interchange he had with former political reporter Charles Thomas, where they were talking about Charles' support of Reverend Dr. Willie Wilson's candidacy and Eric's sort of puzzlement over the fact that somebody as experienced and as bright as Charles Thomas could support someone who really is very weak when it comes to expressing policy statements. In my profound wisdom, I shared with Eric that I thought that it was a communications um, miscommunication because I don't think Charles understood that what Eric was saying was not I don't I don't want to vote for this guy uh, because he's too Republican or I don't want to vote for this guy uh, because he's black or I don't want to vote for this guy because he didn't go to Harvard. But rather, I'm not going to vote for this guy because I look at his 
his campaign website and I see no discernible policies that he wants to put in place. So, uh, Eric, your reaction to my deep, insightful comments? Well, yeah, I mean, clearly Charles was answering questions that I wasn't asking, and uh, I was asking questions that he wasn't answering. It's, it's I don't know if it's a misunderstanding or just one of those things when you're arguing politics, you, you argue the question that you wish you were asked rather than the question that you were asked. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and Charles, you know, when, when I suggested that, that um, um, I didn't think Wilson was qualified, I mean, I, I felt like maybe he was playing the race card on me a little bit by saying, what makes Willie Wilson different? Hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. that part of the exchange. I mean, it's like, I mean, oh, you thought that Pritzker and Rauner were qualified, but Wilson, no. What's, what's different about him? Hmm. I, I felt, I mean, I didn't take the bait there. Uh, I, was, I was a little offended by it, but I didn't take the bait because, you know, I, I mean, I just, there's nothing in my voting history or my political support. I was all, I was major supporter of, of Lori Lightfoot and Barack Obama. And, you know, I, I, I had Tony Preckwinkle. I, I voted for a lot of black politicians. I have no problem. And I'm, and I'm glad, I was really glad to see the rise of black political leaders in this area. So I don't have any problem with Willie Wilson's race. And in fact, I think Brandon Johnson is a really, a really uh, appealing candidate at this point. Uh, but but um, beyond that, I, I, I think that the question of resume and experience is sort of one thing. And the track record is certainly mixed about rich people who decide they want to buy their way into public office without any political support. They want to start. I would say more often than not, I'd say a majority of the time it doesn't work out because government yeah. is not like running a corporation. Right. Well, Donald Trump is certainly the major example of that. I think Bruce <laughs> Rauner is another example of that. Uh, I happen to think that J.B. Pritzker has done a pretty good job as, as governor. I think he's the and, exception and I, that proves the the yes, rule. And, yes. Yeah, I, 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 and actually that was one of the reasons why I didn't vote for him uh, in the primary. What was it? Uh, it's 2018. Uh, because I felt that, that uh, he was just a rich guy who wanted to start at the top. And they start, you know, get, you become, be a congressman or, or a state rep and get some experience and learn how government legislation works for you and say you want, to, you want the top job. That's not how rich people work. That's not how Willie Wilson works. Willie Wilson's only credential for, for being mayor is that he's a rich man. He's made a lot of money in the medical supply business. God love him for that. That's wonderful. But it doesn't mean that you should be able to run a city. And, or, or, but it doesn't mean you can't. It just means that you have to make the case that you're more than just a guy who gives away gas, gro- gas money and grocery money, and you're a good guy. And, but, but he is, you know, when you hear him talk, and I'm not talking about his accent or his, his dictionary, I got, I'm talking about the policies that he puts forward, the answers that he gives to questions. You take, take aside the way how he speaks exactly, but what he says, there's so little there. That you mm-hmm. don't know what he would do. He's in, he's in office, and, and and that's the challenge that I, that I would throw out to people who are supporting him. Like, yeah, he's a good guy, and he's a successful guy, but that doesn't make him a good mayor. We have real challenges in this city. We need someone who is up to those challenges. Someone who has really thought through these issues. Who really has plans. Well, a perfect example of that in in some quarters you'll hear was Lori Lightfoot. People voted for her because she was outside the system. You know, she didn't have any relationships with Mike Madigan or Ed Burke. She was going to come in. She had, you know, she was a prosecutor. She was smart. She didn't been involved with the police board. You know, she was uh, she was going to come in and, and it was going to be a new day. But it took her a long time to get her feet under her because she didn't know how things worked. And she didn't know, like Tom, I was interviewing Tom Tunney, and he said, you know, because he was one of her big supporters for a really long time, and he yeah. almost yeah. considered running against her himself. And he said, you know, 
in politics, he said, you can criticize people, but you criticize in private. You praise in public. That is how you get things done. And from the first speech she gave the day she was inaugurated, she was going after the members of city council. And I think that it showed us that somebody who doesn't have government experience, there's a really steep learning curve to getting things done. Well, yeah. And she I mean, you remember during her inaugural speech, she basically turned around and called the city council corrupt. It's been that way sort of for a long time. And, and one of the big political mistakes that she has made, she made, was that Willie Wilson endorsed her. He ran against her in the, in the primary or the first round. He lost. He endorsed her. He threw his support behind her. What, she didn't need that support. She won with 74% of the vote. But she didn't really think ahead and think, you know, having Willie Wilson inside the tent is a lot better than having him outside the tent. And But she wouldn't even return his phone calls, according to Wilson. She wouldn't take mm-hmm. meetings with him. She just didn't take him seriously. And so now Willie Wilson's going to take enough votes away from Lori Lightfoot that she might well not win a spot in the final two. And that could be like an incredible – I mean, I want to talk about an own goal by, by Lightfoot. And you're right. I, 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 I thought Lightfoot was a breath of fresh air. I, she did have a lot of experience sort of in these governmental bureaucracy areas. Smart as a whip, you know. She, Lori, Lori is such an impressive woman, and and uh, and she might, she still might win. She still might might make it. But but uh, uh, I, I agree with you. Her her political skills were really lacking, and I think that's what happens sometimes when you don't have government experiences. You don't understand what Tom Tunney was telling you was that whole way of of, uh, uh, of dealing with people and how to how to make political traction by addition, not subtraction. So. Anyway, it's going to be really interesting. I'm, I'm really glad to talk to you about it, Joe. It's fun. I'm getting things yeah. off my chest. Can you tell? <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Can you tell, Your Highness? Yeah. Yes, yes. Your Majesty, I think is what I want. Oh, Your Majesty? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I, in, my, in my ignorance, I thought those two titles would be interchangeable. I apologize. I, I, I answer to both. Okay. Eric Zorn, Picayune Sentinel. It will come out Thursday, which is, um, I don't know, I think two days from now, if I'm not mistaken, and I could be. Um, But uh, always a pleasure to talk to you, Mr. Zorn. Take care of yourself. John, thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. All righty. We are going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk to Jonathan Alter. He's, he wrote a biography of Jimmy Carter and uh, has some really fascinating insights into the former president. We'll be back with that right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs, is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at comed.com slash clean energy. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. Over the weekend, the Carter Center announced that former President Jimmy Carter was going to be going home, no more visits to the hospital, whatever care he needed uh, from this point on was going to be provided by hospice personnel at his home. Uh, he had melanoma years ago, which was uh, given an experimental treatment, and he was pronounced cured at that time. Uh, but the 98-year-old former president had recently been in and out of his local hospital. Apparently, he has decided that enough is enough, and he is going to go home and stay comfortable for whatever amount of time he has left. One of the things, uh, as tragic as that is, 
I think one of the silver linings is that he is getting to see the outpouring of feeling that otherwise would not have happened until his death. Very few people are lucky enough to get a sense of how people value them and what they value uh, about them uh, until it's too late. One of the um, biographies of President Carter, and there aren't very many, was written by Jonathan Alter. It's called His Very Best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. And Jonathan joins us now to talk about this. Jonathan, welcome. Thanks for being here. My pleasure, John. And first, I would like to make clear to the audience, Jimmy Carter is still alive, okay? We are, this is not, we are, this is, because I, I, I was, I did a segment once a long time ago, Jonathan, where I was praising somebody, and people started calling in, and they're like, oh my God, he died? He died? I don't, when did he die? And I was like, no, 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 we're just talking about him. So, Jimmy Carter is at home. As those of you who have experience with hospice know, generally you have to be considered within probably six months of um, death to be given home hospice care. Whether he has hours, days, weeks, or months, or longer than that, we don't we don't know. Um, but it is the occasion of him making this announcement that's causing a lot of people to look back at his presidency. His he is somebody who's gotten such incredible PR post presidency. I mean, I said this the other day, Jonathan. Tell me if you think it's true that he has seemingly accomplished more post presidency than any of the other presidents who are alive today. Uh, do you think that's right? Yeah, I think that is true. Um, but what I don't think is true is something that people often say, which is that. He's accomplished more as a former president than as president. That that's simply not the case. Um, so you have a lot more power when you're president to change people's lives than you do as a former president. And he had many accomplishments which have been forgotten about in office that went along with some of his failures. So but you're quite right that he essentially reinvented the post presidency um, and he was really the first one to see it as a way of uh, devoting himself and 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 Rosalind also devoted herself to bettering the world, not just, you know, picking up speaking fees, playing golf, serving mm-hmm. on corporate boards, writing your memoirs. I mean, he did write his memoirs, but he didn't do those other things. And the money that he made from speeches has gone to uh, the Carter Center, which does all this great work in global health, democracy promotion, conflict resolution, human rights. Uh, and he's made his living um, from writing books, and he's written um, 25 of them. Wow. I thought it was interesting that when one of the one of the interviews that you did with him, uh, he talked about how it rankled that people thought of him as a weak president. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, anybody old enough, and that would be you know, probably 55 or older, who, who um, was uh, a, uh, you know, at least a teenager or older when he was president, remembers the way um, the Ayatollah Khomeini essentially 
held Carter hostage, as well as the 52 Americans in Tehran and in the U.S. Embassy, because uh, it it kind of paralyzed his presidency. And he um, didn't want to bomb uh, Iran. And he knew, and his wife told him, others told him, you, you get reelected if you just bomb Iran. And he said, yeah, but all the hostages will be killed and we'll have a you know war that nobody needs. And so he was, particularly by the right wing, depicted as weak for for doing that, essentially, and, and weak for, um, you know, not being more bellicose. Um, and really, to my mind, that's strong when you can not, you know, not uh, just get trigger happy. And, of course, the hostages all came home safely. Now, it wasn't until after... The election that was at the exact moment that Ronald Reagan was sworn in because the Iranian government wanted to stick it to Carter, but they came home in mm-hmm. one piece. And um, I don't the fact that he was the first president since Thomas Jefferson who didn't leave, lose a single soldier in combat on his watch. Uh, I see that as a sign of strength, not weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, but this. This idea that he was weak definitely did take root, and it was it was um, definitely fanned by uh, conservatives who were trying to to take him down. And as you also say in the book, there were a lot of difficulties not of his own making during his presidency. I have to tell you, I am in that demographic you just mentioned a few minutes ago. But apparently I have a rose-colored memory because when I started to read your book and I was reading about, you know, the people lined up for gas and, and, and what was going on with OPEC, I was like, oh, my God, I'd forgotten how awful that was. Uh, Thank you for allowing me to revisit those terrible times. Yeah, in the middle of those terrible times uh, with these long gas lines in 1979, Carter did something that, you know, people laughed at it at the time. They didn't understand it. He put solar panels on the roof of the White House. And this was, you know, decades before everybody got into solar power. And um, Ronald Reagan took the solar panels down. Barack Obama put different ones back up much later. Um, and that was symbolic. But he also did a lot substantively with 15 major pieces of environmental legislation and energy legislation to you know, start to move us toward clean energy and, uh, and energy independence. Um, but, you know, after the Iranian revolution, uh, oil prices surged and then not surprisingly inflation surged and interest rates uh, surged as a, an effort to bring down inflation. And Carter appointed Paul Volcker to be chairman of the Federal Reserve. And Volcker jacked up interest rates to, you know, over 15%. Can you imagine mm-hmm. how expensive money was? And it's pretty hard to run for re-election in those circumstances. And then, of course, Volcker's harsh medicine worked, but Reagan was the beneficiary because... Exactly. In the early Reagan administration, we got uh, growth with low inflation, and then Reagan got uh, reelected. And so I joked with Volcker not long before he died that he he essentially got Reagan elected twice. And he said, yeah, some people have 
said that, but when he said it to Carter, Carter said, well, there were other factors like the failure of the Iran hostage rescue mission and uh, where these helicopters crashed in the desert, and that was bad luck. And uh, the Ted Kennedy challenge for the nomination from the left. And that, I think, is, is less bad luck. That one you can lay a little bit more on Carter, that he didn't manage his relationships inside the Democratic Party as well as he needed to. Interesting. Um, that Do you think it's because coming um, maybe rather than coming from the Senate or from Congress, he came from uh, the governorship. And did that not give him all of the tools he needed to handle democratic politics at the federal level, do you think? Um, it's, a, it's a fascinating question that you ask. And, you know, there were definitely advantages to being an outsider. He was the first governor uh, since Franklin Roosevelt to be elected president. And then we had, you know, Governor Clinton, Governor Bush. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we, uh, we, we moved toward governors since Carter. Um, unlike Roosevelt, though, he had no uh, Washington experience. And I think that did hurt him a little bit. But in some ways, that's been over... Um, estimated that the damage that that did because um, there were some things that he might have been able to get through um, if he'd had more Washington experience or if he had been uh, just a little less prickly um, in his dealings with powerful members of Congress, like uh, tax reform, welfare reform, health care reform with Ted Kennedy mismanaged that. But Kennedy also was acting out in that period, not covering himself in glory. There's enough blame to go around on that. Um, but I think the reason I say it's overestimated, the, the damage that this did, is that there was a huge uh, amount of legislation that was passed, that he did get done, in part because he had a Democratic Congress for four years, and Bill Clinton Barack Obama only had a Democratic Congress for two years. So Carter actually got more bills signed than they did, uh, which I think very few people understand. And, you know, many of them were big deals that we kind of take for granted now, you know, like, say, you know, the Department of Energy, the Department of Education, FEMA, you know, all these things and more were, were established under Carter, you know, major ethics legislation, first reform of the civil service in 100 years um, uh, major environmental uh, legislation, the first funding for clean energy. He was planning to do something about climate change if he'd been reelected. Um, and, you know, then on the foreign policy side, everybody remembers the humiliation uh, in the Iran hostage crisis. They remember that, um, you know, the Soviets invaded Afghanistan and Carter boycotted the Olympics, which was actually very popular at the time, but became very unpopular. Um, and they don't remember things like the Panama Canal treaties, which you know sound minor, but they prevented a major war in Central America. Hundred thousand troops did not have to be sent because of that, and that was a really heavy lift with the Washington establishment, with the Senate. And human rights policy was hugely important in setting a new standard for how 
governments treat their people. Normalization of relations with China, that's the foundation of the global economy. You know, when Deng Xiaoping returned uh, to China from Washington after they established relations, the first thing he did was legalize private property. And then, you know, the Chinese miracle of the greatest expansion in human history of an economy um, that, you know, took place as a result of Carter's decision to move forward with a a relationship. So um, the, um, you know, there are... (laughs) And you know, we didn't even talk about Camp David and, and other things on the. Oh, you mean the stuff he won the Nobel Prize for? That stuff? Well, he actually did not win the Nobel Prize for Camp David. He should have. And I talked to him at one point about that. Strangely, nobody nominated him, and he didn't nominate himself. <laughs> but um, he definitely was responsible for peace between Israel and Egypt, which, um, you know, they had fought four wars in 30 years, and they haven't shot a fire shot in anger since. And, of course, the Israeli army, uh, the the Egyptian army was the only army that could destroy Israel. So even though Carter is seen as having been a, you know, relatively pro-Palestinian president, he uh, he was great for the security of the state of Israel. He won the Nobel um, years later, uh, after the turn of the century, for all of the work that he did as a mostly as a former president in in global health and in conflict resolution and in going the last mile for peace. He, as a former president, he prevented wars in Haiti and, and North Korea. But, you know, Joan, I, I haven't really um, talked about just what an extraordinary and epic life he had outside of politics. You know, I, want to, I want to get into that. Uh, We need to take a break, Jonathan, and I do want to get into that. And I also want you to touch on his early years, which are many of the first several chapters of his book, of Jonathan's book, His Very Best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. Um, We're going to go to break, but real quick, um, he was talking about how um, President Carter could sometimes be difficult. I love the fact that what Jonathan wrote was that while he was always sort of smiling and sweet in public, that he could be peevish behind closed doors. I love that word. And I'm from now on going to be peevish myself, Jonathan. We'll be back with more of this interview right after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. You're listening to WCPT 820. Because facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. The Carter Center announced that former President Jimmy Carter, at the age of 98, uh, was going to be going home to receive hospice care. He had been in and out of hospitals recently, and um, he had decided that he was going to go home and uh, be made comfortable for whatever time he has left. The Carter Center conveying a request from the family for privacy at this time. Uh, but a good time to look back at the Jimmy Carter presidency. And frankly, Jimmy Carter as a man. Jonathan Alter has written one of the best biographies about him. It's called His Very Best, Jimmy Carter, A Life, and is here to talk to us about. And when I so rudely interrupted him as we went to break... He was about to tell us about the Jimmy Carter who 
um, the Jimmy Carter, not Jimmy Carter, the president, the other Jimmy Carter. Go ahead, Jonathan. Yeah, I, I just wanted to, um, you know, give people uh, in the Chicago area a sense of just how different his background is. I, I was born and raised in Chicago. My whole family was born and raised in Chicago. And when I would go down to Plains, Georgia, uh, it was like visiting a foreign country. I mean, I was there <laughs> most recently a couple of years ago um, with my wife for Jimmy and Rosalind Carter's 75th wedding anniversary. Oh, my God. 75 years. And they actually met 95 years ago. Can you imagine that? 95 years ago when Jimmy's mother, who's called Ms. Lillian, was a nurse. And she delivered Rosalind Carter, who was also from Plain Georgia, Rosalind Smith at the time of her birth. Uh, and she brought her toddler, her two-and-a-half-year-old toddler, over to see uh, the new baby um, a couple days after Rosalind was born. They didn't start going out uh, until, uh, you know, uh, Jimmy was at the Naval Academy. Um, But that part of the world in the early part of the 20th century, um, it might as well have been the 19th century, Carter had no running water, no electricity, no mechanized farm equipment. And they were one of the prosperous families in the area, uh, you know, and yet he was barefoot most of the year on the farm. Uh, And there was also, uh, particularly when he got back uh, from the Navy, he was in Admiral Rickover's nuclear Navy uh, working on the most exciting um, tech project in the middle part of the 20th century. And he had to, you know, go into a melted down nuclear reactor, all kinds of adventures that had nothing to do with politics. Um, When he came back after his father died, when he came back to Plains, Georgia, then the Brown versus Board of Education decision is handed down. And suddenly you have these spasms of, uh, racial conflict um, and really white terrorism is really the only thing that you can call it that was going on in that part of Georgia um, and for many years. Uh, and so Carter is trying to deal with all of that and, and make a, a life in politics. And then, um, you know, he, he in some ways he kind of ducks the civil rights movement uh, because he had to choose between being in politics or being in the movement. And while well, he didn't say anything racist or anything like that, he he also didn't really take part. And then after he becomes governor, he says the time for racial discrimination is over. He integrates Georgia and he spends the second half of his life making up for what he didn't do in the first half, namely you know, stand up for civil rights and human rights. And, and so that makes it a story of growth. It's a real kind of epic journey uh, on his part. One of the things that I thought was interesting is you talk about an interview. I think this was when he was applying to the Naval Academy. Uh, I think that was what this was when he was asked if he had been working like to the best of his ability. And he was like, no. And that you say that, you know, he really thought about that and he sort of dedicated himself that from that point on, he was always going to give everything he had. Talk a little bit about that. 
Yeah. So um, this was he was out of the Naval Academy and he was applying to be uh. Admiral Rickover's nuclear Navy. And Admiral Rickover, Hyman Rickover from the west side of Chicago. Um, and he truly changed the world. I mean, if you ask Colin Powell when he was around, you know, how did the U.S. win the Cold War? He'd say Hyman Rickover's nuclear Navy because it totally changed the strategic balance that we could have these nuclear submarines later on nuclear aircraft carriers that um, were, you know, the submarines could stay underwater for way longer than non-nuclear subs. And so Carter is working on the prototypes. You know, he's present at the creation of the nuclear Navy, but first he has to get into this very elite program. And when Rickover, who was famous for hazing people uh, when they came for their interviews, he'd say, you know, go open the window and the window would be nailed shut. And he wanted to see how you reacted, right? And a lot of other really harsh stories that you couldn't get away with nowadays. So he he has um, Carter, and he says, you know, where did you finish in your in your class? And um, Carter told him he thought it was pretty high, uh, and um, Rickover wasn't impressed. And he said, did you do your best? And Carter said, well, I guess I didn't always do my best because uh, he was smart enough to you know finish first in his class. And uh, Rickover turned around and snapped, why not your best? And Carter thought he hadn't gotten in. The interview was over, and he slunk away. And Rickover took him because he had answered honestly, and Carter vowed that he would do his best uh, at everything he tried for forever, and he has. You know, he basically never goes on Miller time, even when he's, recreating, you know, fly fishing, whatever he's doing, he did all in. And so uh, he called his original uh, campaign autobiography, Why Not the Best? And um, I called my book his very best for that reason. What do you think? Uh, Well, there are some of us (laughs) old enough to remember Jimmy Carter and his presidency, but um, there are a lot of people who weren't around during those times. What is it that you want people to know about this guy, whether it's whatever motivated you to write this book or something that you learned while you were writing this book? What what do you want my listeners to take away? Well, um, for younger listeners who I think um, they just know Jimmy Carter as a humanitarian Um, I think that, you know, one of the lessons of his life is that you can be a decent person, an honest person, and still achieve greatly if you work hard enough and you are um, um, selfless enough to look beyond your own own self-interest. So, you know, he um, he just decided that he was going to um, try to lead a um, a good life. And what, what I guess struck me is that people of our generation thought of him as a loser because he was crushed when he ran for reelection, and they mm-hmm. assessed him by you know how he failed politically. 
but now we know that he actually won at life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for people who failed at one thing or another, um, it's important to kind of have that resilience and realize that you can come back and, and achieve greatly. Um, and you can do it um, for yourself. He was a very ambitious man, but also for other people. And I think that's, a, that's an important lesson. I definitely think that is an important lesson. Probably the lesson I should have taken away from that is that I should work every day to the best of my ability rather than in my private life I should be peevish. But, you know, I'm sorry, Jonathan, that's just that is just my defective character. You know, um, you know what? I, I just got to tell you, I, I'm glad you picked up on that because that is part of Jimmy Carter prickly. You know, he this idea that he's some saint is is at odds with, you know, the the record and and. Yes, he's lived a life of humility in that he lives in the same house they they built in 1961, and um, you know he he doesn't care that much about material things, but he's not humble. You know, no politician is, is humble. <laughs> so people shouldn't they shouldn't you know they shouldn't uh, like um, you know assume that they have to aspire to saintliness. They can. You have all kinds of human frailties that Jimmy Carter very definitely has um, and still um, still try to um, think about what your skills can do to help other people or in, in the case of people like us, at least help educate or illuminate issues for other people. Um, it doesn't all have to be you know, humanitarian work in Africa. There's a lot of mm-hmm. ways to serve. There's a lot of ways to um, do things that that make the world at least a slightly better place. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for taking time uh, to talk with us today. Again, Jonathan's book is His Very Best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. Uh, thanks for being here, Jonathan. Appreciate the conversation. Great talking to you. We are going to take a break for news, and then we are going to be talking to one of the nine candidates who would like to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. This hour of Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive is brought to you by Team Hochberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Since we did our mayoral forum January 26th, here at WCPT, we have been inviting all of the candidates who want to be the next mayor in Chicago to join us on the radio for one-on-one discussions. I'm going to open up the phone lines because for the next hour, we're going to be talking to mayoral candidate Jamal Green. So if you would like to ask Mr. Green a question, if you want to make a comment, you can either text or call us on 773-763-9278, 773-763-9278. Um, I'm happy to be joined now by Jamal Green. Jamal, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. 
Uh, before we start getting specific texts today, I have been interviewing many of the other uh, candidates you are running against. And I have found interestingly, you know, when we did our form, and I'm sure all the other forms you've been a part of, the the questions tend to be real big picture. You know, what do you feel about this big issue of the day? Well, what I found when I opened up the text line is that a lot of our listeners have very, very specific questions, you know, not just about public safety, but how you're going to do this or how you're going to do that. Uh, let's start with some of the questions that people have texted in. For instance, let's let's start with crime. Let's start with public safety. We got a number of texts, but rather than being sort of big picture, a lot of people wanted to talk very specifically about police. Uh, we got one texter who said, um, you know, a lot of Chicago police have been accused of abusing their authority, but... How do we help those good police who want to continue as police remain safe and out of danger while on the job? You know, you've talked a lot about public safety. You've talked about what you would do big picture with the police department. But how do we basically get rid of the bad apples and make sure that the police who are trying to do it right feel supported? What's the best way to approach that? The best way to do that is you have to invest in the real causes of what's going on. Um, we got to have a pure responder unit that is responding to the mental health and homelessness calls, right, of social workers that are solely responding to those calls. You have to put in place a youth intervention department, uh, which we're only ones to say that we would do so. Well, we would hire youth interventionists that will have priority of young people 25 and under. And, you know, they would have priority resources. But how are you going to support? I guess the question is more not just the whole issue, but how are you going to support the good cops who are out there working every day? Well, but here's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if you don't start tackling the root cause of what's going on, you're going to continue having cases that go bad, uh, more erosion in a police department uh, and the relationship between the police department and the communities. So that's why you need extra departments. And then you got to hold accountable those bad apples. You got to have a zero tolerance policy for those folks who are affiliated to hate groups. You got to find officers who misuse their equipment to impede any investigation. You have to, um, you know, really start to do what's work, hold officers accountable, as well as, um, you know, we, the contract, here's the thing, here's the problem. The thing is, is that we don't have much control because of the FOP contract, right? Um, and so when negotiating that contract, um, we must make sure that we're doing what's in the best interest of those police officers that actually uh, are doing well and really want to serve and protect communities. Well, what's um, one aspect the of the FOP contract that you would change? Just just pick one thing. Man, <laughs> that's hard. You know how hard that I is? I know. There's a lot. Uh, there's a lot there. But just grab oh one God. thing out of the air. Well, you know, I think that, you know, officers should, they should be able to be more expressive. You know, I'll say that. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of officers who may want to talk about things or may want to speak up and talk about their experiences or talk about how, um, you know, the police department can be um, better served, um, but they, they are not able to. Right. So uh, one thing well, it's kind of a, a militaristic sort of framework, you know, I mean, it's sort of modeled after after the military and 
Um, I think that that's, you know, we don't we don't want those, you know, rank and file saying anything that's going to embarrass the people in power. No, I agree. But I'm saying what it is, is you got a full muzzle on police officers um, and they're not able to speak up or to talk about anything happening on the police force. And I think that's a problem. Hmm. Okay. Um, we have a, a couple of people who are calling in. Um, if you don't mind taking some questions, Gregory is calling in from Rogers Park. Go ahead, Gregory. You're on with me and Jamal Green. Good afternoon. And uh, Mr. Green, I met you after the mayoral debate forum uh, hosted by Ms. Santita uh, Jackson and uh, Ms. Joan Esposito. I think you'll recall me saying I saw you having a great future in politics here in Chicago, perhaps running for, for Alderman first or what have you. But I was so hurt when I heard just a clip of you accusing Brandon Johnson of being a fraud. And I didn't hear the rest of the why you did that. And I just want you to try to flesh that out. Was it because he doesn't really live in Austin or, or, or what? It's a good question. Uh, let me say this. Brandon Donson has been portraying himself as this person who has um, these lived experiences in Austin, like he has been experiencing gun violence firsthand, like he is the blackest person in this race, and it's been rough and rough for him. <laughs> that's, not been the, that's not been the reality, right? And it's, an, it's offensive to me. Because I've actually went through it, and I go through it each and every day. I actually lose friends of violence. Brandon Johnson is from Elgin, and he moved moved to Austin. He had one situation on his block because I know the members on his block that support me. Uh, and you know, he uses the one isolated event where there was one shooting, and he's painting himself as the person who has went through it. How, how, how old? How old? How old was he? How old was he when he moved from Elgin to Chicago? Uh, I mean, I don't remember exactly, you know, the year. That's important. That's a critical. That's a critical fact. That's a critical fact because he came as a child. He is. He grew up in Austin. He has. He did not grow up in Austin. He grew up in Elgin. All right. So well, I want to know the year. We need to find that out. I have to research that. You should know that. Research that. Okay, hang on, hang on, Greg. Let's let's uh, Jamal have a chance to answer. Yeah, right. no. I mean, listen. I'm 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 okay with anybody supporting Brandon Johnson. The the reality is, I think they need to do their research more on Brandon Johnson and his background and his affiliation with CTU and his double dipping and how they're stealing teachers union dues and they're trying to put together this whole progressive framework to try to act like he is the progressive uh, um, candidate for us. Well, that's just not the case. The reality is, he has not experienced these things in the neighborhoods. He has not been on the front lines in these neighborhoods fighting for communities, even as a commissioner. Uh, and people in his district don't support him because of that very reason. So fooling the progressive whites up north that, you know, somehow uh, uh, you are uh, you you are trying to fight for black liberation or these neighborhoods um, just to win a seat. Um, it needs to be talked about and exposed as somebody that is actually doing it and have done it all of their lives. Brandon Johnson is not from Chicago. He came in his adult life to the city of Chicago, um, but he does not have the lived experiences in this city. And I talked about it, and that's what it is. All right, I'll find out what how old he was when he actually moved. So we have the facts. <laughs> okay, you can shoot me a text, thank Gregory, when you when you thank find you, that out. And you. thank you for the call. We need thank to you. take a break. We are talking with mayoral candidate Jamal Green. 
We've got some more texts. We've got more callers. And I still have a bunch of questions that have been texted in previously. We have a lot of ground to cover, so let me be quiet and we can get to it right after this. Hey, this is Reverend Mitchell L. E. Kenna Johnson inviting you to join me every Sunday morning at 7 a.m. Yes, that's early. But when you get there, you'll find information, education, and you may just be entertained. That's the My Community Plan Foundation Hour, Sunday mornings at 7 on WCPT Radio, 820 a.m. Because facts matter. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. We have just a few days till the February 28th election for the next, well, it's not a... Exactly going to be an election for the next mayor, because with nine candidates, it's pretty doubtful that anybody's going to get 50 percent plus one. So let's just say that this coming Tuesday, February 28th, a week from today, we are going to be electing the two candidates who will enter into a runoff that we will have early April to select the next mayor of the city of Chicago. One of those nine candidates, Jamal Green. He was a part of our mayoral forum on January 26th and joins us now to take your calls and answer your questions. Okay, here we go. Um, Jamal, the text that just came in fresh for you. We need to do away with police misconduct. Yes or no, would you do away with qualified immunity? And for the listeners, qualified immunity is... A legal precedent policy that means that uh, police basically get the benefit of the doubt. Uh, they can do things that you maybe would go to jail for, but they can be excused because of the job they do. That's a real oversimplification. Uh, but a lot of people believe that because police have these extra legal protections, that it causes them in some cases to behave more recklessly than they otherwise would because they don't feel that they have to face the same consequences. That's the argument against it. So, Jamal, what do you think about qualified immunity? Well, I agree with what you just said, right? And one of the things that I also talked about is uh, if we remove qualified immunity and, and make them carry liability insurance, um, then it will allow, we'll stop paying $100 million in police misconduct settlements that we're paying each year. We have to remove these protections on police officers and stop paying a billion dollars every 10 years to protect them, taking out bonds just to pay um, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in settlements. It's insane. And so we got to hold them accountable. And if they know that they have to protect themselves, um, then the recklessness on the streets, I'm sure, will come to a very uh, minimum. Um, and that's one of the things that um, we do support. You just briefly touched on an idea that has been discussed and an idea that seems to make a lot of sense to me. The idea that police should be required to carry liability insurance. Explain to the audience, how would that work and what would be the upside of that? Well, the upside is that, you know, if a police officer has their own insurance policy um, and then an insurance company is able to assess the liability on police, um, you know, the the upside is that we're not spending $100 million a year 
and taxpayer dollars on police misconduct. Uh, and then what will happen is, you know, they can design a system or a board where they'll they'll look at their um, complaints, they'll look at their suspensions, they'll look at the amount of settlements that they've had to pay out, um, and they may say they're too much of a risk to insure, right? Um, mm-hmm. And if that and if that's the case, then they can't be on the streets of Chicago because what you have is you have a lot of police officers who. Before they kill somebody or after they kill, uh, uh, well, yeah, before they kill somebody, they've already had many different settlements, right? Um, Jason Van Dyke, I think, was probably at a half a million dollars before they gave Laquan five million before he got to that case. Um, so we just got to uh, put something in place so that we can start to make sure that we can hold them accountable. Uh, and I think that liability insurance uh, on them uh, and not the city continue to pay the settlements is a, is a big thing. Hmm. Um, we have a text coming in here. Um, it's a little, the texts aren't always real clear, Jamal, but I think what this person wants to know, uh, they want to know what you would do to curtail the carjacking phenomenon around the city of Chicago. Well, you know, uh, the carjacking is a, is a huge thing, and you have a few different problems there, right? Um, one of the things is the fact that the majority of people that are carjacking are kids, right? You got 12, 13-year-olds that are carjacking. And I have detectives on the, uh, on the uh, carjacking unit who are good friends of mine. And one called me one day, and he said, Jay Maul, I have this kid. He didn't carjack eight times. He's 11, 12 years old. And he says, Please, can I put him in your program? We don't know what to do with him. All he's going to do is get right. He's in Julie right now. He's going to get back out. And he's going to do it all over again. That's a problem that we're not investing into young people, making sure that there are spaces and mentoring organizations uh, to grab these young people when they get off uh, uh, of the right track. So that's one of the things we're going to do, open up schools throughout the day and on weekends with massive mentoring organizations and programming for students and parents. Make sure that we bring back trade and tech hubs, have apprenticeships for young people 13 and up where they're working, whether in a small business, corporation, senior center, uh, and the city will pay for it. Um, we have to invest in young people. So that's one thing. Number two uh, is we'll, we'll, we're looking at um, a way to sponsor um, tracking devices for folks uh, and work with those companies so that um, we can make sure that we get information as quick as possible so the police can uh, uh, track down cars at a more quicker rate. Um, and then uh, um, um, so the tracking devices, uh, young people, uh, and making sure that we're, we're investing in the root causes, I think, are some of the important things that we must do to really tackle what's going on in this crisis. Um, I want to make sure I, I understood you. When you're talking about tracking devices, are you talking about tracking devices that people have on their cars so that if yes. the car is carjacked, it can be it can be um, monitored? It could be right that we can track down those cars quicker, and then um, that's that's what I'm, I'm sorry I had went blank. I want to say one more thing. We got to hold these you know um, dealers accountable too. You know Kia, we know you know they got the Kia boys out here, and we know it's so easy to uh, carjack a Kia, um, but they won't recall these vehicles to, to make sure that they're putting systems in place um, to prevent that. And we got to hold them accountable too. So we're going to tackle this in a comprehensive state at every angle uh, by making sure if someone is carjacked that we can track those cars down and, and um, investigate and hold folks accountable, that we invest in young people so that they don't turn into carjackers and intervene even after they've done a crime to put them on the right track, uh, as well as hold the dealers accountable 
um, to make sure that these cars are equipped with the necessary, um, um, you know, tools so that they are, are not easily um, jackable. Let's go back to the phone lines. Uh, Steve is calling in from the Gold Coast. Uh, Steve, you're on with me and Jay Mal Green. Go ahead. Yes, I want to make a couple of points. I mean, with regard to qualified immunity, I, I think it, it's much more complex than the candidate would like to like us to believe. I mean, for instance, if you do away with qualified immunity, it undermines the capacity of police to do proactive policing. Because if you're worried about whether or not your pension is going to be intact, someone's going to sue you for your home, your children's educational fund, you're not going to be as likely to go after the bad guys in the way that we would like to see police doing it sometimes. And by the way, if we do away with it, and we say police are going to have to have some sort of a insurance policy akin to what doctors have, then in the very next round of negotiations, guess what the police union is going to do? They're going to demand that you cover that difference in terms of what they're obligated to pay for those policies or that we, we as a city cover it. Because no one's going, in case anybody missed the boat, no one's rushing to be a Chicago police officer currently. So if we did away with qualified immunity, imagine what that would do to our recruiting. So either way, we're going to end up paying for it. So this idea that, okay, well, we're not going to be paying as much in terms of civil lawsuits. Yeah, we'll be paying in on the other side because we're going to have to end up covering the cost of what this ends up um, costing officers. Let me say this. I am much willing to pay for that bridge to insurance over a hundred million dollars a year. Cause I guarantee you it's not even 10%. So, you know, if that is, um, the compromise, I'm willing to compromise on that because we won't be paying as much as we're paying right now. We would definitely not be paying a hundred million dollars a year to settle cases. So if we're spending a few million dollars a year to bridge costs of the insurance, I'm willing to do that. Secondly, um, this is that's predicated on, on a false assumption that somehow everything that we pay out in these suits is a function of what police officers do and eliminating qualified immunity would eliminate our liability in this regard. No, that's absolutely not true. Doctors no, get sued all the true. time. They they have they have they have they have similar it's sorts true. of policies. That, that that doesn't mean that right. doctors don't get sued. Yeah, I think I think Steve, where if I understood Jamal correctly, what he's talking about is even if the city has to pay the premiums, that will end up being less because the city won't be involved in the overall payout, which is the assumption. The assumption is that the payout would be limited to whatever the insurance company is. And I know that's not always a hundred percent true, but I think that's, that's the argument with liability insurance. And, it is, and here's the thing. The thing is, is that's what the insurance is for, right? It's the same as, you know, if you, and, and it will be required to be a police officer. So it's the same as if you are in a car accident, right? Uh, obviously, if you don't have insurance, they're able to come after you. But we will mandate that the insurance be in place so that officers still have uh, um, insurance in place and they're not, they're not being sued directly. So, I mean, that's the best thing that we could do in the best compromise. That way, we can uh, stop paying all this money in settlements and we'll pay the premiums. Thanks for the call, Steve. Um, we have a lot to talk about here. Um, I think... We have about a minute till we have to go to break. One of our listeners texted in. They wanted to know, uh, Jamal, about your professional background. Where have you been? What have you done? Good question. So um, 
for many years, I've been um, a serial investor. I have uh, different companies from, you know, a solar panel company to a spa to a transportation company, uh, as well as I'm a realtor. Uh, I'm in part of real estate and development. Um, and so my professional background is, is managing business, uh, managing employees, balancing budgets, uh, helping new startup uh, small businesses get the capital by facilitating micro loans and grants for them. Um, so that's kind of my background. Huh. As well we as are- you know, advise politically too. You know, I, I was Lori's first year senior advisor, uh, as well as you know, I've, uh, as a spokesman for Senator Bernie Sanders on a national level too. So uh, I've done a lot of political advisement to nationally and locally. We are speaking to mayoral candidate Jamal Green. We have opened up the phone lines seven seven three seven six three. Nine two seven eight seven seven three seven six three WCPT. You can text me on that line. You can call in on that line. We're going to continue this discussion right after a break. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs, is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at comed.com/cleanenergy. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We here at WCPT on all of our shows are talking to the various candidates who would like to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. And just as a programming note, February 28th, a week from today, we are going to be doing an election special Patty Vasquez and Tita Jackson and I will be tag teaming in and out all night long. We're going to be on the air till at least 10 o'clock at night to bring you um, what information, what vote tallies we have. We are um, going to actually uh, be touching base with some people who are out and about at various campaign headquarters. Jamal, what are your plans? Where are you going to be election night? We are going to be at the Sinclair 17 North Wabash uh, for our election night victory party. All right. So anybody who wants to um, to join the Jamal Green camp, you know where to be and you know when to be there. Do you have any sense? I know that we've been hearing from the Board of Elections mm-hmm. that early voting has been pretty high, surprisingly high for this election have you um, have they given you any sense of when uh, the numbers might be, you know, in to a degree enough to call some of these races? Um, no, nah, <laughs> uh, me know, neither. I definitely see, <laughs> but I definitely see that there's going to be a high turnout. And there's going to be a high turnout amongst young people. And, um, you know, telling them this from the beginning is that young people. 3,000 young people, 18 to 34, I want to say, um, you know, voted, or 18 to 24, one of them, uh, voted in November. Um, trust me, there's going to be young people that um, that turn out it's more young people than any other. Why do you think around. that? And Why think do you that, think that? Because they're, because they're ready to decide their future, and they're ready to put in someone who really is going to make the best decisions for their future. They're starting to raise families. They're starting to want to own homes and, and renting's high <laughs> where they're renting. You know, they're having real life adult problems and it's now time to make sure that they have the right leadership. Uh, and, and, you know, they're going to be very key for us come February 28th. 
And you can't poll them. You can't poll non-voters and you can't poll young people. Um, so, you know, it's it's going to be a, a very shocking one uh, next week. Well, I was surprised at the tremendous number of younger voters who came out for the midterm. And I was hoping that that was going to be a trend that continues. One of the post-election uh, things that I most enjoy doing is looking at the demographic breakdown. Who voted? Where do they live? How old are they? You know, who are the people who cared enough about this election to get up and, and do something about it? I think that's fascinating. But you're right. And I think, frankly, for a long time now, polling has been very unreliable because of what you just said. These young people, I first pollsters were like, well, we can't. They don't have landlines. How are we going to know what they think if we can't reach them? And, you know, then they had the phenomenon of some Republicans advising other Republicans to either not answer pollsters or even worse, lie to pollsters when they called. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's and, and I've thought it so amazing in this mayor's race. <laughs> You know, you hear from Lori Lightfoot, her poll shows she's number one. You hear from Chewy Garcia, his poll shows he's number one. You hear from Paul Ballas, his poll shows he's number one. And I'm like, well, and isn't that poll, fascinating? My poll had me winning 51% next week. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So uh, you think that they're, how, have you talked to young people? Have you gotten a sense? Have they said, have they said to you, you know, this is an election I care about. I'm going to get out and vote, Jay Mall? Well, listen, I, I, I push everybody to go follow me on Instagram or TikTok, um, you know, to see what young people are saying. We've actually have gotten over four and a half million impressions over the last 28 days um, just on our social media networks alone. TikTok over a million views in the last three days, right? So, you know, young people are really engaged. They're really engaged. They're paying attention and they're going out to vote. We just took a busload of young people, first time voters to vote uh, on Sunday. Um, and we're going to be doing a lot more throughout this week. So um, even college campuses, you know, I'm doing all their podcasts and young people have been voting. Um, they are excited about voting and new voters as well. So um, we're going to see a groundswell next week. And uh, I can't wait to shock the world. Well, I hope you're right. And it's certainly about time that that young people took the reins of power. But speaking of youth and speaking of age, you know, one of the dings against you uh, is that you're too young. You're you're too young to be mayor. What's your response? That's, that's my look. That's that's a badge of honor for me. Right. When I'm going against a bunch of people who don't have any accomplishments, who are using the same old political rhetoric. Right. Um, you know, when it when they talk about my age, you know, it is um, uh, time for young people to leave. And if you look at every movement in this country, including Jesus. You can look at the Bible. You can look at the Constitution, the founding fathers, the civil rights movement. I don't care where you look. They all were my age. They all were my age when they when they started and made their impact uh, on the world. And so um, that's number one. And number two is my accomplishments. I should be judged by my accomplishments. And the reality is if I can put all of my accomplishments over the last uh, 12 years against everyone's political accomplishments in this race combined, just got a Chase Bank to give back a billion dollars to the south and west sides and they were redlining communities. There are no politicians who stood next to us. It was a small group of us who shut down 
35 branches and pulled them to the table and got them to come out to say, hey, Jamal Green made us see something different. When businesses were looted during the pandemic, we gave out a quarter of a million dollars to get them open. That was more money than the city of Chicago gave to businesses in any other grant program. When uh, Laquan McDonald or families from gun violence or police violence or uh, um, needed support, who was there to support them and help them get justice and move forward a lot of the reforms that we have uh, today? Food deserts, thousands and thousands of dollars and and fresh produce given to food deserts um, throughout the city. So I can go on and on about the accomplishments um, that I have by being an organizer, being on the front line of communities, by being a philanthropist. Uh, and the reality is, is that no one in this race um, can put their accomplishments against mine because they've just been in political seats not accomplishing anything tangible for communities. And people don't want that anymore. It's time for real tangible change. I'm speaking to Chicago mayoral candidate Jamal Green. We are inviting you to text and call in with your questions and comments. 773-763-9278. I just got my print edition of Crane's Chicago Business today, and there's an article there on uh, what is going on with the casino. I'm going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I'm going to talk a little bit about what was published in Cranes. And uh, Jamal Green, candidate to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago, and I are going to talk about the casino deal and other very specific things that you have asked about in the past right after this. Did you know you can text Joan at the same number you used to call us? 773-763-9278. Thanks to our texting sponsor, Camp Kupugani. Register today at multiculturalcamp.com. Text away, 773-763-9278. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. I am joined by one of the candidates who wants to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago, Jamal Green. We have been talking about a lot of the questions you have called in and texted in. And uh, one of the questions that was texted in uh, last week that I was supposed to ask all the mayoral candidates was uh, what you thought of the casino and the casino deal. And interestingly, today in the print edition of Crane's Chicago Business, Greg Hines, who usually writes about politics, has uh, reported on some potential problems with the casino deal. You know, Bally's got the nod and they announced that they had a deal with the Tribune because they're going to put their entertainment center where the Tribune publishing plant is, that they had uh, control of that property through a purchase option agreement and that uh, Tribune was supposed to be out of there within six to nine months after the deal was signed. The deal was signed eight months ago and Tribune uh, shows no sign of going anywhere. And apparently a closer look at the matter discovered that that um, control was not really as clear cut as we were led to believe um, they were supposed to offer Alden some other sites, or if the other sites didn't work out, they were supposed to offer them a buyout. But Alden is kind of sitting back, and as Greg Hines describes it, Alden has leverage. It can stall and delay and hold out however much the people at City Hall and Bali's 
hold their breath until they turn blue. Uh, the article goes on to cite other reporting that while it certainly doesn't allege corruption or bribery, uh, said that there are a lot of questions about this deal and how it went down. It was not, shall we say, a perfectly transparent process. Now, a lot of the contracts have been signed. The next mayor probably isn't going to have a huge um, amount of power to change this deal. But what do you think about the casino for Chicago and the way it was handled? Uh, you know, I disagree with you on uh, the next mayor of Chicago having some uh, control over this. You know, one of the things that we need to do is we really need to audit um, what happened under that deal um, and see what we can do to audit. Um, let me just say in general, I disagree with the deal from the beginning. I disagree with the location. I disagree with Bally's. I disagree with the amount of money that they said that they were going to make because it's bull crap. Um, and no casino in the country is, you know, have numbers that are projecting this high. Um, I disagree with all of it. Uh, and, you know, uh, personally, I'm not the biggest fan of uh, bringing a casino to Chicago. But if they were going to do it, they should have done it in a, a better location, under better terms, under a better deal. Um, so that's my position on it. Um, I think that, um, you know, uh, this whole deal has been corrupt in the, under this mayor. And I think the mayor was trying to use this for political points uh, to try to win her some votes to say that she was able to bring it after people wanted it for many years. Um, but in reality, um, this is a bad deal. Um, these these uh, numbers, everything that they've given us are lies, um, and we need to pay attention to it. And as mayor, I'm going to jump right on it um, first thing in office. Okay. let's. Uh, you've got a lot of texts coming in here. Let's see if we can get them all in. Hello, Mr. Green. I would like to hear how you would work with Governor Pritzker during your mayorship or how you would like to work together. Thank you. So, Jamal? Well, yeah. Well, you know, I, I have a work relationship already with the governor, the Speaker of the House, uh, many members uh, in the state. Um, and, you know, quite frankly, um, we need a better relationship with the governor in the city. Uh, and I would look to really forge best relationship possible um, and try to have our administrations working together much closely, um, more closely than it has been in recent time, um, because that's how we got to get things done. You know, uh, that doesn't make, make me the the hugest fan of J.B. Pritzker. It's about the seat, right? It's about how do we get things done and how we get things done is having a good relationship, not only with um, the governor, but with the county board president, right? A lot of the things that I talk about and a lot of the initiatives, when I talk about driving home ownership, I had a meeting with the governor um, just several months ago and I went down to Springfield and we had a one-on-one meeting and I talked to the governor about um, making sure that in his next budget, that he really focuses on putting money into home ownership, right? I heard an ad on this today. You know, we need to increase home ownership in these neighborhoods. How do we have stability in these neighborhoods when the median income is fifteen, twenty, thirty thousand dollars? We need to bring middle class back to these neighborhoods uh, and really help folks own homes, right? Bringing good paying jobs and doing these things. So I asked him to put more money in the budget so that we can have uh, more down payment and closing cost assistance, so that we can pour 
forth thousands of people back into the neighborhoods and on a city level, we're going to use a single family mortgage bond to also uh, um, help folks um, um, own homes in these underserved neighborhoods, as well as create a public bank for the city of Chicago, which I would have to get the nod from the state and the governor um, to allow us to have a bank charter here in the city um, because we can then invest into mortgages and small businesses, et cetera. And all of that profit that comes back from that bank uh, goes back to city services. So the working relationship is super important uh, and I'm looking forward to it and already have been having a working relationship with them. Explain that point in greater detail. I've heard candidates before talk about a public bank, but explain to the listeners what that would mean and what would be the benefit. Well, what that would mean is that the city would basically have its own bank charter, right? And it'll be backed by um, taxpayer dollars. We would essentially um, loan money, right, for mortgages. We would loan money to small businesses. Most of these um, folks in these neighborhoods are already being redlined by the banks, which is why I fought Chase Bank in 2020. Uh, and instead of depending on these banks to, um, you know, invest in these communities when they aren't, we will have our own bank charter that would do so. We will be able to build um, – public housing, right, uh, and increase our affordable housing supply. We will have our own economic engine where it would be a nine-member board, um, you know, three elected, three appointed by city council, three appointed by the mayor, um, so this fair for, for all sides, um, that will basically, you know, put out loans. Uh, all of the money that comes back to that bank and all the money that goes out will be transparent. People will be able to see every dollar. And then all of the profit that comes in, we'll be able to decide, all right, well, we got, um, you know, the Bank of North Dakota in 10 years, I believe, made like a billion dollars in profit. We will make way more than that because we have, we'll serve more people. So we say, all right, well, we got, here's 500 million or here's a billion dollars. Now what we can do with that money. All right, let's pay down our pension crisis. Let's have, um, put this into a youth program. Let's um, increase home, uh, our affordable housing supply. You know, we would then have profit that will add to the city's revenue. And I think that makes the most sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. Um, okay. Let's go back to some of these other texted in questions. Okay. This is from Al. Conservatives say they don't want to give Chicago one more dollar because it's corrupt and the money's all wasted. What do you think of a public database so everyone can see where the money goes down to the penny? Accountability to make us all happy. Thoughts on that? I'm I'm not against that. Right. I believe in transparency. And, you know, I talk about how we need to have um, technology in place where people can actually see where the dollars are going. Right. Why can't we really have an app? And they've tried to do some some little stuff here, but they really hasn't haven't been transparent with the dollars. But an app where we can go into um, the city app and see exactly where dollars have been allocated to, um, you know, uh, who's getting the money, et cetera. You know, I believe in full transparency. Uh, and I will always, uh, as mayor, and that's something that um, I'm definitely open to. A question kind of with a historical perspective here, um, asking whether or not you've done any time, taken any time to, say, study the politics of Mayor Washington or even Mayor Daley. Not, not Lori Lightfoot or Rahm Emanuel, but looking at Chicago's past and um, any lessons that you feel that you've learned either about what to do or what not to do from those earlier mayors? Well, I've been taught by everyone around here, Washington, um, as well as backed by Mama Josie Childs, the late 
great Mama Josie Charles. She actually just died a couple of days ago. Um, and I was just literally with her a week ago, sitting next to her telling jokes. And she gave me a $250 contribution, the chair of Hare Washington's Legacy Committee and his best friend. Um, so I've learned a lot from those administrations, from being around the people who are with him, uh, really learning about the um, drive that he had, learning about all of his downfalls. A lot of people talk about Harold Washington and the great Harold Washington, but as a person, he had a lot of um, things and personal things that he went through. So really just learning how he was able to push through uh, and be able to fight the powers that be and move forward a progressive initiative. Um, you know, uh, I've been learning about it for many years. So uh, I've been mentored in, I've, under, I've um, learned a lot from Harold Washington and, and even the daily era era. And um, every era had its bad moments, but I think every mayor had good things about it that made them um, uh, very liked by the public. Uh, and I think learning from all of those things and putting them together um, would make for a great mayorship um, under the green administration. So um, definitely an avid studier, avid reader, as well as mentor by all the people that are around um, the Herald era, as well as who worked for the daily administration. Okay, a lot of people um, not only texted in about a casino, they want to know what you think about this NASCAR race that's coming to Chicago. Down. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I think. Shut it down. So um, that that would be a priority of ours. I I think it's a ridiculous deal. Um, It is no benefit. I don't see the the huge benefit of the city. So you don't see it bringing, Um, like... Thousands of tourists to the city of Chicago and revitalizing the hotel industry. No, I do not. (laughs) I think that is a a huge pipe dream. And I haven't met one Chicago NASCAR fan yet. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, uh, let's talk about the Bears. Uh, Do you think you could keep them in Chicago or should we even bother? And if they do leave, what would you do with Soldier Field? Well, here's the thing. The Bears, uh, you know, are making, I'm a business guy, right? And, um, you know, I've been a business guy since I was 15. And so I really understand um, where they are. And where they are right now is a better deal where they can build up a stadium, where they can own the park and own the concession. um, And really, it'll be better for them financially. So I understand that part of the deal. So the problem is, is that, you know, of course, we would love to negotiate to keep them here, but they're not happy here. So even if we they stayed here for uh, a certain period of time, there's going to be a situation like this again in the future. Uh, and we're not going to spend billions of dollars um, to uh, taxpayer dollars uh, just to keep them here for a short period of time. So I don't think that makes sense. If they leave, um, if we don't, if we're not able to come to a good deal where everyone has skin in the game and we can uh, commit to each other, um, then we would you know, renovate Soldier Field, spend a few hundred, couple hundred million dollars, renovate it and make it a, 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 a entertainment venue, rent it out to Lisa, to colleges, um, you know, really make it uh, a, a world class venue um, for Chicago uh, and, and really invest in it. So, I mean, that, that'll be our plan under our administration. Um, we've run out of time uh, and run out of uh, texts. <laughs> Thank you, Jamal Green. He is going to be on your ballot if you live in the city of Chicago a week from today, unless you're voting early. And uh, thank you for being here. And I wish you the best of luck. Thanks for having me. Driving at Home with Patty Vasquez is up next. 
Santito be here tomorrow at 6 a.m. I will be here tomorrow at 2 p.m. Hopefully we'll have some results from the um, Supreme Court race in Wisconsin. Oof. We'll have a lot to talk about, but then we always do. Stay f- safe, my friends. Have a great evening. Good night.